I guess a, an accent with a cold is not the best thing to listen to, but we'll do our best. Would you turn with me, please, uh, for a first reading uh, to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Every so often the elders here at Tavistock set aside a few months of irregular services to give a, a refresher course on what is often referred to as basic Bible doctrines. You will find some of these in a statement of faith. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to pick up a copy at the back and read it through. Each statement has supporting scriptural references, uh, but understand that these doctrines have not been developed by Tavistock Bible Chapel to support their own views. They are truths God has revealed to all mankind. In the Holy Scriptures we call the Bible, and we believe them, and teach them, and try to live them, and encourage others to do the same. Mention of the word doctrine raises interest in the minds of some people, uneasiness in others, and the sense of impending boredom in still others, which is unfortunate because all it really means in relation to our studies is instruction. The term is not exclusive to religion. The general idea is that Bible doctrines are basic truths essential to our understanding of God and his dealings with mankind and are to be taught and accepted as such. Doctrine can be divided into various topics and subtopics such as the doctrine of God that deals with the nature of God, who he is and what he does. Is the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the inspiration and infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. The doctrine of sin, redemption by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, and salvation by faith. The doctrines of heaven and hell. These may sound very academic and they are sometimes taught that way, but they are intended to be life-changing truths. The question then arises, is one doctrine more important than another? My view is that when dealing with information from God, everything is of equal importance, and we worship him in our obedience to them. However, like most structures, they are built on a foundation and put together according to a plan. But where to begin? 
religion is about God and his requirements, so the doctrine of God seems a logical place to begin. But again, we must ask where to begin. Please turn to chapter 11 of, of Hebrews, reading at verse 6. <clears throat> there the writer says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I take it from this that there are prerequisites to gaining a knowledge of God. One must have faith that he exists and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. Nevertheless, God can be known. The study of God is a never-ending study. But again we ask, where do we begin? What is that all one, that one all-important doctrine of God that will convince us more than any other that getting to know him is worth the effort? We read that without faith it is impossible to please God. Verse 1 of that same chapter says, Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The English dictionary gives the meaning of substance as material, the physical entity. But that's not what it meant when this letter was written 2,000 years ago. In its original language, the word is a compound of two words. One meaning underneath, and the other meaning to stand up or hold up, giving the sense of a supporting base. The second of those two words is used in 1 Timothy 3 and 15 to describe the church of the living God as the pillar, the pillar and ground of the truth. When combined, they are sometimes translated as assurance or confidence. The evidence of things not seen. Other translations use confidence or conviction. So we have now faith is the base of the support of things hoped for. The conviction or confidence of things not seen. F.B. Meyer, a well-known British Baptist preacher of the last 1800s and early 1900s wrote, Faith is the sixth sense. It makes us as sure of 
unseen or future things which we know about only through the divine word as we are of things which we can see and touch. It makes us sure of unseen or future things as we are of things that we can see and touch. I don't think we will go too far wrong if we understand faith as a personal belief that confidently accepts all that God reveals of himself and is itself a sure foundation for all that God builds on it. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. And the meaning there is, but without faith, it is impossible to gratify him entirely. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I believe that the foundation doctrine is faith. But faith in what? It is faith in God's revelation of himself. If we do not accept that, then what we call faith has no foundation. To simply accept that there is a God is of no practical value if he remains unknown to us. This world is full of people who believe in a God of some kind, but cannot agree on what he's like. And unfortunately, an increasing number of people teach that it does not matter how we think of God. Nor does he care because he's only too happy to take whatever worship he can get. But what is God's revelation of himself? And where do we look for it? There are several places we can look. We can look at creation. Romans chapter 1 Paul speaking of uh, the way humankind has gone. In chapter 1 and 20 he says, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God's creation in every realm tells us of his eternal power and what Paul refers to as his Godhead. But as far as I can see, it reveals nothing personal about him other than his love for variety, beauty, color, and order. But it certainly tells us that he is there. And the Romans, even although they had that knowledge and they 
for centuries before everyone has had the knowledge that somebody must have created what is around them. But it didn't make much difference. We can also look at conscience. Those who promote evolution have no explanation for the universal existence of a conscience that tells us to do what we know to be right and tells us not to do what we know to be wrong, even at a cost to ourselves. And more than that, has the power to punish us if we disobey it. Survival of the fittest has no conscience. From where then does conscience come unless from the one who designed mankind and their souls on which it acts? Since it's impossible for a creator to create anything of a higher order than himself, we can conclude that God has the perfect moral standard and requires the same of his creation. Psalm 51 and 6 says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Again, the Apostle Paul, comparing the knowledge of God that the Jewish nation had revealed to them in the Old Testament Scriptures, with what heathen nations had by observing creation and following their conscience, as in Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the Jewish law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. However, there is many today have disobeyed their conscience for so long that it has become inactive. And Paul in his letter to Timothy describes them as speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared by a hot iron. <coughs> so then, I find nothing in creation and nothing in my faulty conscience that leads me to an understanding of God. Certainly not the personal relationship I need. Yet it's inconceivable that a creator would not want to care for his creation. So we must look elsewhere. And since there's no obvious way for us to communicate with God, we have to look for ways by which he has communicated with us. And God has communicated with us by the written word.
<clears throat> I was going to say that for those of the Christian faith, God communication is to be found in what we call the Bible. But that would suggest the possibility of there being other communications to other religions. And that's not so. We believe that God has preserved his communication with mankind since creation in the book we have in our hands today. And in it he has revealed all that we need to know about God and mankind for this life and the next. The Bible is God's record of his revelation of himself. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 2-4, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But where among the all things should we start? What is God's most important revelation of himself? I think we find that in the book of Exodus, where Moses, while leading the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan, was given a private audience with God prior to God revealing his glory to him and his laws that were to govern their new nation. Turn with me please to Exodus chapter 33. <clears throat> Exodus 33, reading from verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, Show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And God said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And Moses said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, Carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? 
so shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by, me, <coughs> by name. And Moses said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for thou shalt no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, when my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand, while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face thou shalt not see. Chapter 34, verse 5. <clears throat> and the Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. Although God had earlier revealed himself to Moses as the I Am, the Eternal God, I think this is the first recorded revelation God gave in respect to his character. Of these words God used to describe his glory and therefore his character, what do you consider to be the most important? And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundance, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and that will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third 
into the fourth generation. Certainly all are important and they describe the God we all need. But is there one that's more important than the other? You may have heard the story of the man who was in for a job interview. The person interviewing said, now this is a very respectable firm and we need respectable people. Have you ever been in trouble with the law? No, I've never been in the trouble with the law. Your job will entail handling many of the funds that come through the company. Are you a gambler? No, I'm not a gambler. You will be entertaining many of our business clients. Do you ever drink to excess? No, I never drink to excess. Do you have any vices? Yes, I must admit, I have one vice. And what is that? I sometimes tell lies. And you see, that takes away everything. And I believe it's this characteristic of truth that is the foundation of all God's other characteristics. For that alone guarantees them. The Apostle Paul, writing almost 1,500 years later, and having studied the history of the Jewish people, had no hesitation in saying that God does not lie. Indeed, cannot lie. In Titus chapter 1, he starts out by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness and hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Faith in God as being the God of truth is extremely important to God. We find an example of that in the life of Abraham, when after his battle with the four kings, and especially after his refusal to take any reward for his victory from the heathen kings, God speaks to him again. Turn please to Genesis chapter 15. Beginning at, at verse 1. And it was after that Abram had refused uh, to take anything uh, from uh, the king of Sodom. And because he was afraid that it would be turned against him and that a heathen king would have said that he had made Abraham rich. 
And God's, Abraham's trust was in God. 15 and 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless in the steward of my house as this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven. And tell the stars, count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And this is how we preach today, that faith in the word of God and what he has done for us is the only path to righteousness. And because of his faith, God counted him as righteous. In Genesis chapter 2, we read that God speaks to Abraham after preventing him from sacrificing his son Isaac. And in 22 and 15 and 18, we read, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld my son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. And in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews refers to this double blessing in Hebrews chapter 6 again, verses 16 to 18. For men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Everything that you and I have as believers hinges on the truthfulness of God. That God who cannot lie 
Every promise that we find in Scripture cannot be taken away, cannot be changed without showing that God is not true. So you and I have the confidence that whatever God has promised to do, whatever it be, we can be assured that he will carry it out. I've emphasized the importance of the truthfulness of God because I believe God emphasizes it. To reject it is the downfall of every individual and nation. Where is the promise of his coming is the cry of the scoffer. Surely God will not send ordinary people to hell, at least not forever, is the philosophy of the complacent. God cannot lie. He must do what he has promised. You can be at peace with that, or you can ignore it at your peril. The choice is yours. What is the choice? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And people who will not believe that name cannot find salvation. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Those are the two choices that you have. But there's hope even for the worst of us. We cannot say that we're too bad. We cannot say that we're too good. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and in truth. The Lord Jehovah, the Lord God, the Almighty, ever-existing One, claims to be merciful and gracious, and nothing and no one can prevent Him 
for being, for being that. He's long-suffering. He's abundant in goodness. And since he's a God of truth, nothing can take that away from us. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, after listing dozens and dozens of times his own people had turned away from him and ignored him. And that's a theme through all the Old Testament prophets. They always turned away from God. And Malachi, the last of God's words to his people for 400 years, he reminds his people, for I am the Lord, I change not, neither ye sons of Jacob, I change not, therefore <coughs> ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Proof. After a thousand years of struggling with his people, that he had not given up on them. There were those who were incorrigible. But God had promised that he would take this people and make them a nation that one day would be chief in all the earth. And despite all the people did, God said, I am the Lord, I change not. And that's the only reason that they're still alive at that time. Because God had promised that of that nation, his son would come and that they would indeed be the masters of the earth. Listen to the words of Paul as he reaches the end of his time on earth. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. <clears throat> this was the word of a man who had allowed God to live through him. Despite his opposition to God and the Christian faith, God had saved him and changed him. And he had that faith that God, in the end, would take him home. And he said in another place, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Don't you want to believe in this God? And when it comes to the end, like it came to the end for Paul and others, don't you want to be able to use the words of King David in Psalm 31? <clears throat> Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord. 
God of truth. Choice is yours. Do you really accept God as being who he claims to be? A God who is founded on his truth. Who can never lie. Who can never fail to keep his promises. Who can never fail to forgive sin. Shall we pray? Father, we thank Thee that we have a God who changes not. A God whose very foundation is truth. Help us to take comfort in that, Lord. Whatever way you, you lead us, whatever path you have, you have a God who said that every place I take you, is for your ultimate benefit. That I have saved you for a purpose and together we can fulfill that purpose. Father, there may be some here today who don't believe your word and say that that type of God is not the type of God I believe in. There are those who say, no, I won't go into church. I go out into nature and I worship the God that I see there. That that God tells them nothing about the character of the God who will one day judge them. And so, Father, we'd ask that once again you would show them your truth. Part us with thy blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Could we take time to sing 497? Put thou thy trust in God, in duty's path go on, walk in his strength with faith and hope, so shall thy work be done. Commit thy ways to him, thy works into his hands, and rest in his unchanging word, who heaven and earth commands. 497 